Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what you have led us through these past seven months, and even what you have led us through this past week. Everything has led up to this point. Everything you've been leading us through, you've been stretching us with, you've been teaching us with, has led to this point. We thank you that you are a God that is always working, a God that is always working in our lives. There is nothing that happens in our lives that's random or pointless or meaningless. You use all of it, and you redeem everything. Lord, we thank you that you, you are going to use everything that you've led us through up to this point in our understanding of your word and our application of it to our lives. So I pray your blessing upon this time this morning, that your spirit would go forth with your word, work in our hearts, churn in our hearts, change our hearts. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. I read an online article this week from a popular news website that talked about how a lot of the old technology from the 80s and 90s is still sticking around or making a comeback in spite of all the streaming services and apps on smartphones. And I learned some interesting things from it. You guys might not recognize any of these things. <laughs> For instance, if you thought that pagers we're all but dead by this point. Think again. Apparently, 130,000 doctors in our country still use them on a daily basis. Since cell reception in hospitals can be pretty patchy, fire and emergency personnel still use them. Again, same, same concern. And many people who fly a lot still use them because you can still receive a page miles high above the earth, apparently. Whereas, as we all know, you've got to put your cell phone on what? Airplane mode. When you, when you fly, you can't get anything in or out. You're not supposed to have it on, for all of those of you who refuse to put it on airplane mode during a flight. This next one surprised me. Apparently, last year in 2019, the sale of cassette tapes surged by 19% growth. I don't know why. Apparently, nobody's tried to rewind one of these things. <laughs> Or, or have all the tape out of it. In the age of Pandora and iHeartRadio and Amazon Music and Spotify, I guess people, and evidently many people, still have a certain fondness for a mixtape. And this last one I never really thought about, but when I read it, it made sense. Netflix, which is now broadly known for what? It's streaming service, right? has actually committed to keeping its mail-in DVD rental services functioning for at least another five years from now. And the reason for that is this. Most of the reason is to continue to serve those in remote and very rural areas where internet service is limited or not found with a movie selection service. And as the author of this article noted, and as probably most of you who use Netflix streaming can attest to, I know I can, there's not really a whole lot left on Netflix streaming that's worth watching anymore, right? On Netflix streaming. So, could Netflix's mail-in DVD service make a comeback with a greater selection of titles sent straight to your door? I don't know, but it's an intriguing question and it seems like a good possibility at this point. 
When we compare new versus old, it depends on the topic as to which is best, and sometimes time changes that as well. But when Jesus compares the new versus the old, the new is astronomically better than the old. Astronomically better than the old. And this new that Jesus reveals here is what our entire hope as human beings for eternity rests upon. Like I mentioned the past couple of weeks, we covered a lot of parables that are included in the three synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that when we covered, that we covered them back in Matthew, there were a couple of in Mark that were not included in Matthew, and we covered those the past few weeks. Today, we start turning our attention to the Gospel of Luke and the parables found in this book that aren't found in either Matthew or Mark. And we'll be jump-starting in Luke 5, sort of a cold open here. At this point, Jesus has called the first five disciples who will follow him, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew, and he's done a bunch of healing by this point. But at this point, Jesus' ministry has just begun. And it's at this point that Jesus tells his first parable as recorded in Luke. So if you haven't already turned to Luke 5, please do so now if you brought your Bible with you. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Luke chapter 5. Uh, and, and if you don't want to do either one of those things, if you're thinking books are too old school, pull out your smartphone and look up on that, on your favorite Bible app on that. I want all of us to see what leads up to this point. Jesus has just called Matthew a tax collector for the Romans and a traitor to the Jewish people in their minds. The Pharisees have just attempted to call Jesus' integrity into question by going behind Jesus' back to his disciples and grumbling at them why their master is associating with horrible breakers of the Jewish law. In a funny twist of irony, Jesus wheels around and responds to the Pharisees and emphasizes that in the true kingdom of God, it is repentance from sin, not a gold star for lifetime obedience to the Jewish law that gets you into the kingdom of heaven. It's repentance from sin. When that response falls on deaf ears and instead prompts the Pharisees to say, yeah, well, what about this? And prompts, and, and prompts the Pharisees to say, John's disciples fast and we fast. How come your disciples don't fast? What's that? Anyone with half a brain can see right through that response, right? That's an attempt to distract without actually responding to the statement. How much of that, I'm sorry, did we see during the political debates this past month? Okay. So again, Jesus turns the attention of anyone who would care enough to listen, to listen back to what the true kingdom of God looks like. Not only would he have to leave his disciples one day and that they would fast when he left, but then here in story form, Jesus reveals something that he will fully confirm when he institutes the Lord's Supper, the last time he celebrates the Passover with his disciples before his arrest. What is that? Well, let's look at the story here. Matthew, uh, sorry, <laughs> I was in that book for so long. Luke chapter 6, verse 36. Chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, verse 36. And he was also telling them a parable. 
No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Well, this is the first of two parts of this parable. And they mean the same thing and they had the same point. As one biblical scholar noted, Jesus uses two illustrations already very familiar to his listeners at this point. To make his point. We can also understand this today. That we don't need to think very uh, hard about this. If we have a shirt that's 20 years old, and I know some of you here do, <laughs> you've washed that thing how many times? A lot, hopefully. <laughs> and if it's 100% cotton, what has already happened to it a long time ago? It shrunk, right? If you take a patch that's a brand new piece of cloth and sew it over the hole in that old shirt, what's going to happen? That shirt won't shrink anymore, but guess what will? That patch, that new piece of cloth. Now you've got a shirt that has an even bigger hole because the shrinking patch ripped the stitches out of the shirt. And no matter how many times you try again, if you keep using a new piece of cloth for the patch, you'll keep ripping that old shirt more and more apart until in theory, you don't have an old shirt anymore. Nothing will change that phenomenon. The second illustration, like I said, has the same exact point. We'll see what that point is after we read this second illustration, verses 37 through 38. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, we've read that parable so many times over the course of our Bible reading. I wonder how many of us really stopped and thought about what Jesus meant by that. Again, Jesus used imagery that would have been immediately understood by his listeners. Again, according to one biblical scholar, wine was usually stored and fermented in either clay jars or wineskins, which were bags sewn together out of animal skins. When one would pour unfermented grape juice into a wineskin, that skin would stretch with the following fermenting process. When that wine was done fermenting, that wineskin was through, no matter how, how cheap you wanted to be. That wineskin was through. You would pour out the fermented wine to drink until there was no more, and then you'd throw that wineskin in the garbage. But say you poured out half of that fermented wine in that wineskin, and then tried pouring in what Jesus describes here as new wine, which was unfermented wine unfermented grape juice. That's what new wine was. What would happen? That wineskin would burst, right? Since that wineskin was stretched to the max with the previous batch of fermenting wine, if you then poured unfermented grape juice into that, and that batch then started the fermentation process, it would be too much for the structural integrity of that wineskin. There would be no more it could stretch. That was just common sense in Jesus' day. See, I needed to explain it, but that was just common sense in Jesus' day. Same with the new cloth patch on the old clothing. You just didn't do that. Nobody in their right mind would do that. And what's more, 
is that no matter how many times you tried, nothing would change. You just end up with the same result. More and more of a rip in your old shirt and bursting wineskins, broken wineskins with holes in them. That's Einstein's definition of insanity, isn't it? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. But nothing would change. Keep that in mind, because that's going to be important to our understanding of salvation from this parable here. The Pharisees were jealous and bitter and petty towards Jesus' disciples for their joy. They were jealous and bitter and petty towards Jesus' disciples for their joy. Especially in the case of Matthew, a tax collector hated by his fellow countrymen and a hopeless soul when it came to pleasing God, hearing about God's forgiveness and salvation in response to his repentance brought him overwhelming joy. In fact, Luke 5.29 tells us that Matthew, or another, his other name, Levi, was so overjoyed at his newfound spiritual hope and peace that he went and threw Jesus a big party and invited a bunch of his good-for-nothing friends to come meet Jesus. That's how joyful he was. And the Pharisees were jealous of that joy. That's why they made such a big deal out of this. See, because to them, the whole point of life was to follow and obey not only all the rules in the Jewish law, but also all those they tacked on to the original Jewish law. What joy is there in that? Let me ask you that. Is there any joy in that? No, not at all. All simply and only just following a bunch of rules gets anyone is false self-righteousness and judgment towards everyone else. I suppose there could be a twisted sense of happiness from that, but it doesn't last. Why? Because you will never measure up. I'll tell you that right now. You will never measure up. There will always be more that you could do and should do to try to measure up in that mindset. There's always more. And the inherent basic and foundational problem with that line of thinking is that it's impossible to follow enough rules to forgive your sin. It's impossible. Your sin will always separate you from God no matter how many rules you try to follow. The Apostle Paul spent a whole bunch of the book of Romans explaining that. Without repentance, there's no forgiveness of sin. And if there's no forgiveness of sin, there's no salvation. And without salvation, there's no true and lasting joy. No amount of rule obedience without repentance logically results in true and lasting joy. It just doesn't happen. It's not there. That's Jesus' point in verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. Now here, Jesus does a play on words with the words translated as new and old in what we've already read. He doesn't mean the same thing, what he, what he meant before. So far, what Jesus' point in both of these illustrations is that the new thing he's hinting at is completely different from the old. It has to be, right? It cannot simply be added to the old. 
It has to be something completely different. It must stand on its own. We'll see more of what Jesus is getting at here in a second. But first, when Jesus uses the words new and old in verse 39, he means something different than what he's already described. In verse 39, we find out that the new thing Jesus is hinting at will be better than the old, but in the way that old wine is better than new wine. As noted by one biblical scholar, naturally fermenting wine could only achieve a certain level of alcohol, but fermented wine, or old wine, as described here, was always preferred next to, in comparing to unfermented grape juice or new wine, especially in feasts and celebrations. No one would be asking for unfermented grape juice in wedding feasts in that time period. The old wine, the fermented wine, was always what was desired. In that case, especially during a celebration, no one would drink fermented wine and then wish for unfermented grape juice. Jesus' point in verse 39 is that no one would experience the joy and salvation from God that comes from repentance and then wish for the meaningless life of just following the rules, of just following the Jewish law. Here in these parables, and this is what I said we'd come back to a second ago. Jesus is first revealing, albeit in a hinting way, what he will confirm at the Last Supper. The new versus the old. So what, what are we talking about here? Here's Mount Sinai, well, a painting of Mount Sinai. When God first led his people out of Egyptian slavery around 1500 B.C., he called Moses to the top of Mount Sinai and gave Moses the law that would govern this, new freely, this newly freed people group that had no laws specific to them at that point. The Israelite society, of course, was a theocracy, meaning that God was the governor and king. That new theocratic society needed laws to govern them. Since it was a theocracy, these laws had a dual function. They were both pragmatic to keep order among 2.5 million people, and they were spiritual in nature. They were both pragmatic and spiritual. This set of laws that God gave to Moses is known as the Mosaic Law, named after Moses, or the Jewish Law. They represented a covenant that God made with his people at that point called the Mosaic Covenant, or when we get to the New Testament, it's referred to as the Old Covenant. In this old covenant, God entered into a contract with Israel. But the catch with this old covenant is that it was conditional. Only if the Israelites showed their love for God by obeying his commandments would they be able to enter into and live in the promised land, be protected by him, and be provided by God as their father. If, however, this is the conditional part of that contract, the Israelites broke their end of the covenant, God would bring discipline towards them, and they would lose that land. But when God gave these laws to Moses, he made a disclaimer about them. They were never meant to replace Israel's love for him as their God. That wasn't the point of them. That love was meant to be the driving force behind their obedience of the laws he gave to Moses. That was the point their love for him. 
Because of that, as Paul will explain about 1,500 years later, the law was never meant to bring forgiveness and salvation to anyone. It was the individual Israelites' love for him, who he was, and belief in his future Messiah that granted them the salvation to receive eternal life. That's what the basis was, not following the Jewish law only. Hebrews 11 is filled with Old Testament people, both before and during the establishment of the Jewish law, who received eternal life, and the basis for that salvation was their faith. It wasn't simply obedience to the Jewish law. It was their faith. That love and faith in God then drove them to obey his law. But we know something very well. As human nature often is, a lot of Jewish people replace their love for God, and that being their focus, with thinking that just following the Jewish law, you know, as well as you could, was all that was expected of them. That's why you see the Israelites so easily falling into idolatry time and time again. And ultimately, that's why you see the divided kingdom, kingdoms of Israel and Judah having to deal with God's discipline, having to deal with God's judgment. The kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians and made to intermingle in marriage with their people, thus creating the people group known as the Samaritans. You know, the, the people that are the half-blooded Jewish people and, and the full-blooded Jewish people didn't like them very much. And that's why you have Jesus using them in that parable of the good Samaritan. Then you have the kingdom of Judah being conquered by Babylon and carted off to live in Babylonian exile. But both times, what did they lose? That land. But if you go back, and look at the warnings that God gives through the prophets to the kingdoms of Israel. And I want you guys to stay with me so far through all these judgments. Because this is what I want you to see. If you go back and look at the warnings that God gives through the prophets to the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, yes, part of God's reasoning for sending his judgment to befall his people was because they didn't obey his law. But so much of it is God mourning over the fact that his people betrayed him time and time again, committed spiritual adultery with the false gods of the Canaanites time and time again, and broke his heart time and time again. That had so much more to do with the Israelites throwing away of their love for him. But guess what? God never gave up on his people. They had broken the old covenant he had made with them, and they had to deal with the discipline associated with that. But in the middle of all that time period of hundreds of years of God's people turning their back on him, him warning them over and over again to turn back to him, them responding by killing all of those prophets he sent with these warnings instead, and then God sending his discipline on them, God sent a prophet named Jeremiah to tell them something very important. That very important something was this. Even though his people gave up on God, he had not given up on them. That faithfulness was then prophesied about in these words. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. 
This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors, that old covenant, when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant. That covenant is no longer standing. Though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. And in this new covenant, I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's that very important something that Jeremiah brought to the people of God. Notice who the emphasis is on through this entire thing. Notice who the emphasis is on. Who is the emphasis on? I will make a new covenant. I will forgive their wickedness. I will never again remember their sins. This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. The emphasis is all on God. This new covenant will not be like the old covenant, because that one is broken into pieces. This new covenant will be entirely dependent upon God and what he does, not on people, and therefore will be unconditional. Nothing people can do will break this new covenant. God will establish this new covenant, and God will be the one to keep it. Since God cannot break his promises, this new covenant would never be broken. In this new covenant, God would write the spirit of the law on his people's hearts. They would just sense what pleases him. How would that work? Well, God would be the one to work and convict and transform their hearts to want to please him. Another prophet, Ezekiel, said in connection with this new covenant, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, the Holy Spirit. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people, and I shall be their God. That new spirit would be the Holy Spirit. And clearly drawn out of this prophecy, the Holy Spirit will be the only reason and way God's people will be able to live the lives that God wants for them, pleasing for, to him. Notice what the emphasis is on with the new covenant, the heart, right? This new covenant would, would include a complete heart transformation, one where a heart of stone, uncaring about the things of God, would be not added to, but outright removed and replaced with a heart that God loves and wants to please him with that life. Complete heart surgical removal of that and replacement. God, uh, Paul tells the churches in Galatia that the whole point of the old covenant or the Jewish law was to be a placeholder a chaperone, a teacher whose sole purpose was not itself, but pointing to the new covenant. The new covenant was always what God had in mind. 
The old covenant or the Jewish law or what the Pharisees kept pushing was always meant to point to the new covenant. And just like the prophecies stated and Jesus flat out illustrates in these parables in Luke 5, this covenant was not to add to the old covenant. The new covenant was always meant to be pointed to and stand alone. It was always meant to be separate from the old covenant. The new covenant is what God always had in mind. So what was the point of the old covenant? It's really very simple. All of those laws, the entirety of the Jewish law that represented the old covenant, the entire point of all of that was to show people for hundreds of years that they could never be good enough morally to please God. That was the whole point of all of that. To show people flat out for hundreds of years that they could never be morally good enough to please God. In fact, the Apostle James stands up at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 and declares exactly that. Fast forward about 400 years. We have a man who claims to be both the Son of Man and the Son of God. His origin is both human and deity. He's reclining at a table in the upper room of someone else's home, having rode into Jerusalem on a donkey a few days before that. He's observing the Jewish feast of Passover, a feast whose entire focus is God's salvation of his people from slavery with his 12 disciples. During this observance, this God-man, Jesus, who has done the impossible and has followed the entire Jewish law perfectly, thus showing his holy perfection and right to be a perfect sacrifice, takes two elements of the Jewish Passover meal, bread and wine, and uses them to establish something. He takes the bread, breaks it, and gives it to his disciples to eat as a representation of the breaking that would happen to his body for them and which they were identifying their, themselves with in eating it. And then Jesus takes the Passover wine and says this, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. In Matthew, Jesus connects the new covenant established by his blood to this. This is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice. And here is where he connects back to those prophecies talking about the new covenant. To forgive the sins of many. That's the whole point of the new covenant. Both the old and new covenants were established by the blood of sacrifices for sin. The old covenant sacrifices merely covered over Israel's sin and had to be done every year. The new covenant sacrifice was the very basis for forgiveness and removal of sin. And it was a one-time deal. The old covenant was only focused on the death of the sacrifice. The new covenant focuses on the death and resurrection of the sacrifice. When Jesus shed his blood, died on the cross, and rose again three days later, the new covenant prophesied about by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel 
400 years before that was established. And that same new covenant has remained in effect for almost 2,000 years. And every single one of us sitting here or watching this later online is under that new covenant time period. And like I said earlier, we should be so overjoyed that we were born in this time period that we could be under the new covenant. Gentiles, most of us here, or non-Jewish people were offered the same opportunity that had once only been reserved for those of Jewish ethnicity, and that is to also be given the new covenant promises. Like I said before, the point of the old covenant was to show people how futile it was to try to measure up to God's standard of holiness. But unfortunately, a lot of people continue to bank their eternity on that lie. A lot of people still continue to bank their eternity on that lie. Not just Jewish people who refuse to accept Jesus as their Messiah and salvation, but anyone who thinks they can do enough good things to get on God's good side and outweigh the bad they've done is believing a lie. It just doesn't work that way. We've seen that clearly in God's word. It was never meant to work that way. Only one person has ever been good enough to measure up to God's standard of holiness, and he's also God. If we accept that he lived his life of perfection on our behalf, fulfilled everything about the Jewish law on our behalf, died on our behalf, paid the price for sin, death, that he didn't owe, but paid on our behalf, and rose again to give us new life that replaces our old life on our behalf, we will be saved from the eternity that we all deserve, the place of banishment from God's presence where there is eternal physical and emotional torment. At that point, when we put our faith and trust in him for what he's done on our behalf, when we repent of our sins and old lives of living for sin and ask God for forgiveness for our sin on the basis of Jesus' death as our substitute, God enters into this new covenant with us. What's being under this new covenant mean? Well, let me tell you. It means we are given a perfectly good and faithful Heavenly Father who provides for our, our needs. It means it gives us the peace we've always craved. It teaches us, convicts us, and corrects us as needed, and showers us with everlasting love. It means we are given a Savior who reached out to us with his death and resurrection to grant us welcome into God's family and who lives now to be our King. It means we have been given the Holy Spirit to remove our heart of stone and transform it into a heart that wants to please God and follow his commands for our lives out of love for everything he's done for us. After all, commands God gives us in his word are meant to protect us from the destruction of sin and give us the most blessed life we could have. Even those are given out of God's love. Being under the new covenant means we are given God's promises of always being with us, always growing us, always freeing us. 
It means we're given his unconditional love. It means we're, we're, we're given every promise of peace God makes in his word. It means God will take our fears and our worries and our anxiety and replaces them with his hope. It means that the Holy Spirit indwells us and transforms our hearts and lives, breaking the chains of addiction and sin and making our lives pleasing to God. It means that when God the Father looks at us, all he sees is Jesus' righteousness covering us without blemish. He sees us as his child. It means that you are royalty, the child of the king of the universe, bought and paid for by the prince of peace. It means that God will redeem every aspect of your past, no matter how traumatic, evil, or sinful it's been. It means that we take Jesus' promises to the bank that our Father will take care of our every need on this earth. It means we will be called up to be with Jesus in the clouds, and we will always be with him for eternity when he returns for his church. It means that we will get to enjoy the blessings of his coming earthly millennial kingdom on earth. It means that we have 100% assurance that we have a heavenly home that will exist forever to look forward to. It means we will earn heavenly reward when we live our lives for Jesus and seek to further his kingdom in the here and now. Thank God. Thank you, Jesus. Our God knew that we had no hope without him. He knew it. So he had already made a plan to establish an unconditional covenant with us, the new covenant based on his faithfulness, which can never be broken. So let us live in joy, just like Matthew did. Let us live in joy, overwhelming joy, and renewed love and obedience to God for being able to live under the blessings of this overwhelmingly awesome new covenant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the tremendous gift that is the new covenant. Thank you that you wanted to be with us. So you came, Emmanuel, God with us, to walk the paths we walk, to suffer all the things that we suffer on this earth, and then to go willingly to the cross, to do so knowing that you were doing it to free us, to establish that new covenant, to pour out all the blessings of heaven upon us. And if we turn from our sin and we turn from our old lives and we turn to you, we have all of these promises and so much more. Lord, I pray that we will live this day forward in overwhelming joy because that is what you give to us each and every day through this new covenant. We get you both in the here and now and we have heaven to look forward to. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.